There's definitely a massive shift away from car ownership that took place over the last 10 years. And I think it's there, it's happening, it's growing, it's, and it's going to get bigger and bigger over time. What I do think, though, is I think people slightly overestimate the speed by, by when will it become, you know, 70% of people are not owning cars. So. So thanks everyone for joining us today. Uh, Sarah and I are talking to Tarek Kabrit, co-founder and CEO of Seas. Tarek is someone who's been part and parcel of this ecosystem uh, for a while and has seen it from different sides of the spectrum, from strategy consulting, PE to VC since 2010, uh, Tarek. Um, and and most recently as uh, the founder of a company in the tech slash automotive industry. And obviously part of the Nua family in many, many ways. Um, so is this true, by the way, Tara, you went from convincing people not to get a car to launching a company that's essentially digitizing the automotive space? Yeah, I actually also don't really like cars. I <laughs> don't know much about cars. So it's, it, it, it didn't come from a passion for automotive, really. It came from a passion or a need to really try and solve a problem. And yeah, that's that's how it started. Have I told you how, how the company started initially? No, actually, it'd be great if you could. Um, let's talk about your journey. Like, wait, why don't you kick us off with uh, with an intro? Yeah, sure. So basically, I, I started my career in strategy consulting with uh, Booz & Co. Uh, they were Booz Allen, then became Booz & Co, then became <laughs> Strategy N. But uh, I started as a strategy consultant. Then I joined Deutsche Bank in London doing investment banking, M&A. Came back to Dubai in 2007. Uh, joined uh, Siraj Capital, which was one of the first, at the time we were calling it SME, uh, private equity, <laughs> but really it was to a large extent VC. I think we, we liked the vocabulary at the time. It wasn't purely tech focused, but you know, I think half of the, half of the portfolio was around tech. So stayed with them for around three years. Uh, it was in the middle of the financial crisis. So basically I joined them in August, 2008. And then September 2008, the whole world collapsed. Uh, ironically, we're out fundraising. So if, if you feel it's hard to fundraise now, <laughs> you should see it in September 2008. Uh, we ended up raising 37 million. Our target was 100. In retrospect, I don't know how we raised anything, to be honest. Uh, invested it. You know, we ran out of money. And then I, I left them, joined Abraj Capital. Uh, at the time, they were looking to launch a few uh, SME funds in the region. So I joined initially in Dubai and then they launched an SME fund in, in Lebanon. So I moved there, stayed with them for around three, four years, eventually ended up leading the Lebanese fund. And uh, I, I actually also worked with one of the portfolio companies. So at some point they wanted to move me back to Dubai for pers personal reasons. I wanted to stay in Lebanon. So I ended up taking a position as a CFO of one of the portfolio companies that they have invested in. Did that for a year. Then I got a job with uh, Mubadala and Aldobi. Uh, worked with their subsidiary, aerospace subsidiary called the Asad. Uh, I was director of strategy and M&A there. It was a pretty cool experience. It's uh, always been curious about space, like probably a lot of kids. <laughs> and uh, it was a great opportunity to really work with something, you know, I wouldn't even say remotely space-related, pretty pretty space-related. So did that for, for a few years and, and had Cs going on the side. And then at some point we raised money from uh, from a few VCs, so decided to really take the plunge and, and go full-time on Cs. So uh, I'm, I'm a believer of it's okay and it's not bad to really start a business on the side. I know there are some people in the VC world that have strong views against that. I, I don't think it's bad. I think it's it allows you to, you know, run for longer. And because you're not, you know, worried about your salary at the end of the month, it allows you to fund the business. It allows you to do a lot of things that you can't do if you just leave, go full time and, you know, you don't raise VC money very quickly. Uh, for C's, basically, the idea started, I was in Lebanon uh, at the time and I had just gotten an offer from, from Abu Dhabi so uh cancelled my rent, sold my car. I'm like, all right, I'm good to go. And then you know, 
six months in, I, I was still waiting for my security clearance. Uh, the job with with uh, Yasat involved a lot of you know government and military stuff. Um, so it took a while. Obviously, I'm Lebanese. That <laughs> that really delayed things as well. So uh, during those six months, I had no car, and I was walking with a friend of mine, and we saw this Mini Cooper on the street. And I was like, you know what, uh, since I was in university, I've always wanted to buy a Mini Cooper. I'd like to, maybe I should buy one for a few months now, try it out until I have to leave and then, you know, sell it. I'm like, I really like this one. You know what, how much does it cost? He's like, I have no idea. I'm like, do you know which year? Maybe I can Google it. He's like, I have no clue. I'm like, man, there should be an app where you just snap a picture of a car like Shazam and it tells you what the car is, how much it costs. You can, you know, buy similar cars, blah, blah, blah. And went back to the office, like every good entrepreneur or future entrepreneur, Googled it. I didn't find anything there. So I decided, you know what, why not start building that? And it started from there. I personally use that a lot. Really? Uh, <laughs> absolutely. So interestingly, a bit like you, I, um, I was not convinced about car, car ownership. Uh, for a very long time. I sold my car. I was very happy using different ride-hailing apps. Um, and then I moved to Dubai and sort of, you know, things changed. And with the COVID inflection point, I think also, I really felt like I needed a car. And I have to say, CES was like absolutely instrumental because the, the information is there, but it's just so fragmented that it's very difficult to find everything in one place with all the details on the car make, uh, uh, you know, and, and literally everything that you as an end consumer would like to know about this vehicle that you're about to purchase. And it's, it's, a, it's a sizable purchase yeah. as well. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So one thing I did, like, when I first moved back to Dubai, was I wanted to buy a car. I wanted to buy a used car. And it was one of these German cars that have, like, you know, like maybe three layers of, of sub-models and trims and whatever. And so I was looking at the cars and it was very difficult to compare what's a good deal versus not a good deal, right? So, you know, it was, there was a, like the basic model, then an S model, then a 4S model and a whatever model. And then each one might have different years and different mileage. So I really, you know, being an ex-banker or whatever, I put it in an Excel sheet and I was like, okay, I want to try and estimate which one of these that are in the market now is a better deal. So that was that was one of the other features we ended up adding is giving you a fair valuation for a car, which at the time no one was doing really in Dubai. Like right now, a lot of the classifieds added that as a feature, but at the time no one was doing that. So really giving you what's the fair market value of the car to know whether if you're selling it, how much should you sell it for? And if you're buying it, what's you know which one of those deals that you're looking at is really a better deal. Uh, to go back to your point, Stephanie, on, on, on car ownership, so I, I, there's definitely a massive shift away from car ownership that took place over the last 10 years, uh, you know, partially with micro-mobility solutions like these electric scooters and, and all these things, and, but more and more, you know, majorly through the, the Ubers and the Kareems of the world and like ride-sharing. And I think it's there, it's happening, it's growing, it's and it's going to get bigger and bigger over time. What I do think though, is I think people slightly overestimate the percentage of people who are using it and the speed by, by when will it become, you know, 70% of people are not owning cars. So yeah. I've, I've read a lot of research around that. I can't remember who it was, McKinsey, I think, or BCG. They were saying by 2030, 25% of all car owners are gonna shift towards you know, shared car sharing. And it's it's big, but again, it's not 100% and it's not in the next two years, right? <laughs> so people tend to, that that and autonomous cars also, people tend to really overestimate the speed by which it will happen and, and, and take place. So I think people will continue to buy cars. I think, you know, people who live in cosmopolitan cities like here in Dubai or New York or London or LA or whatever, you know, they see people around them and, and yeah, the majority... Maybe I think they are really using, you know, ride hailing. But if you look at, you know, the the middle, you know, uh, Midwest in the U.S. and and you know Asia and all these places, they're not all Ubering it everywhere, right? So, th and this is these are the 
big chunk of people who are buying cars. So that's that's generally around the, the trend and, and moving towards car ownership. What happened in, in, in the pandemic, which you mentioned, you know, like you shifted your mindset slightly towards uh, owning a car, is two things happened. So one, from a, from a safety health perspective, people became, you know, a bit more weary about taking a taxi or public transport or even Uber and, and, and all these things. Uh, but this is short, short-lived, right? So it's 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 it won't last forever, obviously, and uh, things are already much better now. But another trend that I think is more long-lasting is people started working from home, and this is here to stay in some form. And as people started working more and more from home, the need to be really central, close to your office, became diluted. And as less less and less people are more keen to be, you know, living in the center of the city. They moved out further away to the suburbs. And as you move away further to the suburbs, you know, public transport becomes weaker. I mean, don't think about Dubai. It's a very small city, but larger cities, public transport becomes weaker. Availability of Uber or, or Lyft or anything becomes you know, lower. So people started buying and owning more cars. What happened within that is a lot of those people couldn't afford to buy cars but they wanted cars now, so they shifted also towards used cars. So there's been an increasing demand toward, towards used cars. Hi, um, Tari. Um, so why was there, um, what was your strategy during the pandemic as people's mindset shifted? Because yeah. there was a big change in the automotive industry. So how was it, um, how, what was CES's strategy then? Yeah, so what happened is, is the following year. We had just closed the funding round. Like we wanted, we wanted to raise three million dollars, and fortunately, we got fifteen million committed at the time for our Series A. So you know, like every entrepreneur, we step back and say, you know, do you take more money, get diluted now, or take less money? And you know, there is no right answer for that. We we opted to to take more money, so <laughs> we ended up taking six million instead of three, and we closed that round in February. 2020, and then in March, the whole world collapsed, right? So thank God we did that. It was <laughs> definitely not planned, but very, very lucky. So once once we closed that round, we had $6 million in the bank, and our core business model at the time was data. We were making money from, you know, these data analytics tools that, that we created. And all the brands, the manufacturers, really paused their marketing. Like, you know, in March, April, you know, showrooms were, were almost closed, so... No one was selling cars, so they stopped and like, okay, what do we do? So we, we lost around 80, 80% of our revenue at the, at the time. So we had two choices. We were like, we either, you know, hunker down, cut our burn, extend our runway. We have the money in the bank. Let's cut our costs and really, you know, try to you know, go in hibernation mode for the next year, year or two and then come out with a you know, small pool of cash and try to do something at that time which is not a bad strategy, which is probably what, what most big companies did. Or you really try and envision how the world's going to end up after this and what role can we play in this new world that will emerge. So we, we ended up going with the second one. I just felt as a startup, just you know, continuing as is for a year and a half and then going out and saying, I want to do something and raising money wasn't going to work. Like... Uh, you wouldn't have grown, you wouldn't have evolved as much or as fast as you need to, to really get to the next milestone in your chapter to really, you know, raise money and, and do something then. So we opted to really step back and think of how is the world changing? How is the world evolving and what role can we play in it? And we found two trends. The first trend was on the car buying side, people were becoming more and more interested in online car buying at least in an omni-channel way where, you know, a big part of the journey is online. And on the dealer side, you know, dealers were becoming more and more interested in digitization. So when the showrooms were shut down, they weren't selling any cars. They woke up and were like, oh, crap, you know, we're, we're not selling any cars. <laughs> we don't, we have a website, but it doesn't really do anything, doesn't help us. So you know, going back on the demand, big companies that were selling used cars online became be, began to really rise very quickly. So there's a company in the US, you guys are familiar with it, but whoever doesn't know them, it's called Carvana. It's an eight-year-old company. They sell used cars online. You know, at their peak, maybe a month ago or so, they were valued at $72 billion in eight years. 
It's actually the youngest Fortune 500 company ever. The fastest unicorn in Europe is a company called Kazoo. In two years, they went up from zero to $2.5 billion valuation. Now they're at eight, I think. Same thing in, in Latin America and Mexico, a company called Kavak. So really, you know, these, these companies were coming in and filling in the gap, the gap where consumers are interested in buying cars online, but dealers are not really ready to really serve that market. So, so there was, there was a big shift to, toward that space. And, and on the dealer side, there was a lot of dynamics that were happening. So one, COVID pandemic, showroom shutdown. Two, the rise of the Carvanas of the world that are competing with the dealers in, in a sense. And three, a lot of the manufacturers, the car makers, uh, were moving into something that they call the agency model, whereby they want to sell directly to the consumer like Tesla does. So you put all these, you know, three things together, it was almost the perfect storm to really put pressure on the dealers. So they wanted something that really, you know, helps them out of this. So we stepped back and we thought, okay, we can either continue with our marketplace as is, data, whatever, but that means we didn't evolve. Like a lot happened in the world and we really didn't change anything. And the second route we could have taken is we say, okay, we want to become the next Carvana. We go, we buy the cars, we sell them online, we compete with the dealers. And then the third route was, why not actually work with the dealers? And instead of competing with them, help them. So we felt that that sounded very interesting for us because from our initial days, you know, partnerships was in our DNA. That's how we build the company, by partnering with other websites, with other dealers and all of that. At the same time, we, we were working with the Dubai government to create the world's first digital car registration over blockchain, which is now live on our app. We announced it in Jitex last year. Uh, and it's basically gave us the, the street credibility, if you will, to yeah. really say we are becoming more and more of a SaaS provider for car dealerships. And as the registration is the last step in the journey, we felt, okay, we've cracked this part. Let's now go back and see what else we can crack. And, you know, we came to the idea that why not actually become the Shopify for dealers, help them digitize their own businesses. You know, automotive is the only $3 trillion industry that hasn't been digitized yet yeah. because it's very complicated. So help the dealers digitize their own platform. And once they're digitized and we're connected to each other on the back end and everything, use their cars in our new marketplace that will be official dealer cars only and a full digital and omni-channel journey, which basically us and the dealers coming together to create a Carvana or an equivalent in the world, you know, and again, instead of competing with them, helping. So I, I wanted to, building on that, because as you've mentioned, there's a lot of moving parts globally. What have you seen? How is it the space actually shifting in the region? Are we seeing similar dynamics? Are we seeing something that's slightly different? How would you describe it? So regionally, it's, it's a bit tricky on the, on the, tech side and startup side, it's fairly mature. Like it's, it's, you know, I would even say it's a bit crowded. Like, you know, in Dubai, you have maybe six, seven, you know, companies that are playing within that ecosystem. Saudi to a lower extent, but it's, it's, it's growing now with the availability of funding and VCs and all of that. That's, that's also going to accelerate over time. The, the really unique dynamic for the region, I think, is the fact that the dealerships in the Middle East tend to be almost monopolies, diopolies. So, you know, in, in Germany, you have maybe 100 BMW dealers. In Dubai, you have one Toyota dealership, right? Yeah. And, and basically, they tend to be, they cover the whole country. So the dynamics of the profile of the dealers, how they operate, you know, the, the competitive pressure on them is very different regionally versus outside. And over time, they've, they've been fairly comfortable, you know, rightfully so. You know, if you're the only guy who sells a Toyota in the country and anyone who wants a Toyota is going to come to you. So there, there's very little incentive to really push yourself and innovate and change things and do all of that. I think now, you know, with the, what happened also globally with, with, the, with the manufacturers moving to that agency model that we mentioned, there's been a big shortage of uh, chips for manufacturing new cars internationally. So there's been a shortage of new cars. So dealers started shifting towards used cars a bit more, and prices of used cars have shut up, which also helped. But with the shift towards used cars, now suddenly the dealers woke up and like, oh wow, you know, here we are competing with a lot of companies. You know, there's there's quite a 
Uh, there's a company called Cars24 that just came into Dubai from from India, and it's it's a unicorn, whatever. So really, there's big you know players in that space that that can compete with even monopolistic dealers. So that that's where the dynamics are beginning to shift now, and the dealers will need to start making decisions. Do we you know launch our own platforms and compete with these guys? Do we partner with some of them? Do we buy some of them? And it'll be, it'll be a very interesting time to see what will happen over the next three years within, within that world. So how do you, um, how have you addressed that at Seas? Because it's, it's quite interesting. You're based out of here. Um, you had your app, you have your app um, that I was a heavy user of uh, before buying my car. Uh, and a lot of people I know too. Um, but then you've started you actually have some very interesting uh, traction and, and partnerships happening in Europe. So how does how does that work? How do you balance that? And, and what's your strategy for for both markets? I would say. Yeah. So for for the Middle East, we'll we'll continue with our current version of our app. We'll continue with the data that we provide. You know, given the relationship with the with the Dubai government, we'll also keep pushing on that digital registration. But in terms of you know, creating that full omni-channel experience with the local dealers and creating this online buying platform, we found that there are, you know, easier markets for us. So through some relationships, we ended up connecting with large dealer groups in Europe, probably some of the largest in Europe. So in Denmark, we're working with the, with the largest dealer group there, second largest dealer group there. And... We we looked at the Danish market, and it's 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 a very highly digitized market. They sell a lot of cars, surprisingly. So for a small population, almost half of the UAE, they sell double the number of used cars that we sell here. And they're early adopters of technology in Scandinavia, you know. And, and you have this whole, you know, like uh, Spotify and and and. And, you know, can't remember the the voice over IP thing that that launched from there. What what was it called? <laughs> uh, the Skype. The first called Skype. Yeah. Skype. Yeah. Of, so so they've had. I mean, for for tiny countries, they they've actually been fairly successful in tech. And then we looked at the markets from a competitive landscape, and there's really nothing there. Like no one is really doing much on online car buying. On on versus here, you have like seven players in a tiny country like the UAE. And at the same time, we ended up partnering with the second largest dealer group. They sell around 30,000 Mercedes cars a year, which is probably 5x what the dealers are selling here in Dubai, right? So they're actually the monopolies that are selling here in Dubai. So they're actually quite big. And, uh, and we said, okay, why not work with these guys, help digitize them? And then through them, we ended up connecting to dealers number two and three in Denmark who also want the same thing. And now once you capture the top three dealerships, you have a big chunk of the quality cars in the country on our platform. It makes perfect sense to launch that marketplace there. So through those discussions, you know, through the lack of competition, through all of these things, and, and to be very honest, <laughs> you know, we didn't want to go, we got some interest also from Germany and Italy, but we didn't want to go after markets where Kazoo and Carvana and these guys are going all out and spending, you know, $300 million marketing there. But we felt, okay, why not go after the edges of Europe where these guys are not playing and create, you know, the, the leading platform in those areas. So we're starting in Denmark now. Hopefully from there we want to expand into Scandinavia. And then we're also partnering with the largest dealer group in uh, Portugal and Spain. And we want to start there in Southern Europe and, and expand from there. So you might wonder, you know, why, why the heck is a... Uh, the largest Danish dealership working with a with a startup from Dubai. Like, isn't there anyone else to do that in Denmark? The honest answer is no. I mean, you can take my word for it, but more importantly, you can see the big dealers coming and signing up, right? Like, there's there's a big opportunity there, and and they like the depth of our tech. You know, we we don't just have a plug and play solution that we give you and you just you know connect to it. We actually go deep. We work with them. We create product for them. So for example, trading in your car is, is, is very popular in Denmark and it's not digitized yet. You still need to go to the showroom. They see your car they give you evaluation. So we're working now with the data group to fully digitize that journey 
you know, you upload the pictures, we assess any damage on the cars from the pictures using image recognition. We use our car valuation to estimate the value of the car. So really building deep products with these with these partners for us there. Tari, um, what does digitization entail? And how are you guys different from like the SaaS solutions and ERP solutions that are out there today, especially as you go into a European, uh, European market? And as you said, being um, a Middle Eastern company going into European market is very unique. So I just want to understand how that looks from your side. Yeah, so there, there are two types of SaaS providers. There's the generic, you know, SAP type of products that you use for everything, but they're not really built for automotive. You know, you can use it, but it's not ideal for that specific industry. And globally, there are, I think, three, four companies only that do automotive SaaS solutions, you know, for car buying and digitization. The The difference between what we do and what they do, I think, is twofold. One is threefolds, I guess. So one there, we have the marketplace angle at the end of it, which the dealers like. Two, we actually go much deeper than these guys. So these guys have built a very scalable solution and that's great. It's a great business. It's a great business model for them. They end up signing a thousand dealers and making good money on that. For us, we don't want a thousand dealers. We want the top five in every country. And because of that, it allows us to really go very deep with those dealers. So instead of having a, you know, a high level solution that you just plug into it. And if you don't use the same bank that the SaaS provider has partnered with, you're, then your car loan is not digitized. If you don't use the same insurance they've integrated with, then you don't have digital insurance, so on and so forth. So we go and we, we don't do that. We say, okay, what bank do you work with? What banks do you work with? And we will work with you to digitize that journey. What inventory management system do you use? We will integrate with that, even if it's your own in-house weird, you know, <laughs> inventory management system, we will still integrate with that. So really we give them something that currently doesn't exist out there in that sense. Um, and the third reason is just we, we go with this, you know, partnership mindset. We're not just a service provider. We're saying, you know, we're coming and creating something with you guys in, in those countries. And, and they like it. I mean, we, we almost become their digital innovation partners. Uh, on a lot of the ideas that they they want to launch as well. And I'm, I understand that you're trying to, or you are creating an omni-channel uh, experience for the for the customer and for the dealer. So can you tell us a bit more about that? And have you sold any cards uh, using that experience, like the whole yeah. journey? So that's, that's, that's pretty cool. So uh, basically the way we're creating this is not just beyond the SaaS providers, we are creating a real omni-channel experience. So we're actually the only platform that is allowing them to connect their offline and online car sales in a seamless way. So you can start your journey on the website, customize a car, go to the showroom, test drive it, and the sales guy walks up to you with an iPad, literally like an Apple store kind of thing, enters your name, and like, oh, Sarah, I can see you've customized this car, you booked a test drive, let's do it now. Would you like to apply for a loan now? Sure. Let me take a picture of your ID. You have you have an email that just popped into your inbox with a link. If you want to apply for a loan now, say, no, you know what? I'll do it over my lunch break. I have to go back. You go back, you do it from your phone. So whether you do it from your laptop, from your phone, from the showroom, every step you take, sounds like a song. <laughs> Like every every, every every step you take, every every action that, that you make there is actually connected to your personal journey, which you can log back into and complete from any place. And and that 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 is the real omnichannel experience. Like, you know, some people say, like, or pitch, uh, you know, we'll digitize the whole thing. That gives you omnichannel. Omnichannel is not just having a digital journey and an offline journey. It's actually having a journey of both of them that are connected. The connection is really the omnichannel part. And that's, that's what we do for them. So really buying a car becomes, you know, I'm the kind of guy who doesn't care about test drives. I just want the car delivered to my house. Boom, I do everything from my phone. It, it arrives, you know, in, in, in two days. I'm the kind of guy who wants a test drive. I can do this, go do the test drive. I don't have to redo anything or tell them who I am. Everything is really seamless, you know, just, just connects seamlessly. And if you're the offline type and you want to go do everything offline, but then you want to go back home and, you know, check with your wife or son or whatever, when, when do they want the delivery and really schedule that directly from the website, you can also still do that.
Okay, um, so let's uh, let's talk about your team um, for a little bit. You know, often when we talk about uh, C's uh, at the office, we often talk about the strength of the team and the strength of the the culture uh, that you guys have built. Um, and they're also geographically distributed, right? So a couple of questions from here. So A, how did you convince them to come on board early on? And then B, um, how, maybe kind of pause a little bit on your team formation and, and what values you've sort of kind of built together. Yeah. So on the team side, we started off like we needed some... AI capabilities and was hard to find, you know, back in 2016, 17. So we we ended up hiring four Danish engineers and we moved them to Dubai, put them all in an apartment that was also their office. And then it was, it was a pretty funny structure, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, and the way we convinced them is, you know, it was like exciting new opportunity, move to Dubai, which, you know, branding wise is, is has a good brand name globally. Uh, we gave them some some early shares when they came, and they they were the the starting team for for the business. Andrew, my co-founder, is from Denmark, and and he's connected in the tech world there, so it was much easier for us to find talent and attract them. Like I wouldn't have found four Danish guys to bring here, so that was that was the initial the initial team, and from there we just started building on top of it, and very sporadically, you know, we ended up hiring someone. Uh, out of Germany, and they were like, okay, that worked, you know, he was a developer, he was working remote, it was okay. Then the Danish guys moved back to Denmark, one of them moved to France, but they wanted to stay on with us, so we did that. And then, so it was a very organic, natural way that we evolved into this, you know, hybrid model of, of remote and, and, and on the ground. Now we have around 20, 20 people in Dubai, uh, which are mostly the non-tech team, and then the tech team is is, is almost all of it in 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 Europe, uh, scattered across you know thirteen countries, <laughs> uh, and we put a lot of effort into making it work. It's not easy, you know. It has a lot of disadvantages, uh, and I don't, I don't think we cracked it. But I think we do a decent job at it, you know by putting a lot of effort into, into making it work. So we have a lot of you know, Slack is obviously our office. So that's, that's where we all hang out. And, and we have some really cool fun channels that we use because <laughs> I, I see a lot of startups that have these channels and they're like, no one really does anything there. We actually keep complaining about splitting channels. So we have a random channel that we put a lot of jokes and pictures and stuff. We have a daily picture channel. Yesterday, someone was saying, we're posting a lot about cooking stuff. I think we should have a cooking channel. So, so we're actually adding more channels because the ones we have, we're, we're overusing them for too many different things. What was we, your daily picture yesterday? It was the fundraising one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, then we had we had things like we understand that you know being remote, you miss out on you know this this water cooler chat that they call right like running into someone in an elevator or in a kitchen or something like that so we we got this software that matches two people randomly every two weeks and you have to have a 5 minute random call right so <laughs> some someone in like a, in Poland and and you have to chat with them and and it it almost mimics this you know awkward 5 minutes you know, while you're making coffee and some other guy you haven't spoken much with before comes in. So, so we tried to do a lot of that, a lot of team activities. Uh, I spoke about it a while back, but like we have a psychologist on board also for people who want to talk and, and vent. It's, it's, it's a company perk basically that we offer. Uh, so we try, we try to do a lot on culture, a lot of, a lot on connecting the team and all that. I don't think many companies, at least I haven't seen many companies offer that. Yeah, it's 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 not very common, but honestly, the team loves it, and I think it's super useful. I, I think it's ten times better and 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 more helpful than giving a yoga, you know, like a subscription, and yeah. the team doesn't want to do yoga or whatever or CrossFit or something. Absolutely. So I've um, while I was prepping for the episode, 
I heard you say that one of your favorite quotes is something your friend has told you, which is, yeah. I don't know if I'm getting it right, but you have to survive long enough to get lucky. Yeah. What does that mean for you? Man, I think that's the best startup quote. So, like, you know, I for four years, I used to drive from Abu Dhabi to, to Dubai every day. Yeah. So I've listened to, like, every podcast and every book. I was looking the other day, I've listened to 311 audiobooks, basically. I put them on, like, two times the speed, so I finished more books. And and with, with all of this, honestly, the thing that resonated the most with me ever out of all these books or podcasts was that that sentence you just mentioned from my friend, basically saying startup is about surviving long enough to get lucky. Because for me, it, it has so much wisdom in it. I don't know if he meant it that way or just like he got lucky saying it. But basically, you know, startup is about survival, right? And survival means you know, building the right team, building the right product, solving the right problem, but also keeping enough momentum to really raise money, being able to raise money. So it really puts everything in it. Like, like if you're doing well, you're surviving. But also it, it, it puts a bit of humility in, in the startup journeys. Not everyone is like Facebook and they're growing at 10x every year and their servers are crashing. You know, it's not, you need to, be blitzscaling every 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 other week to to be successful you survival it's hard it's it's gritty it's all of that things but then more importantly like it says until you get lucky right so it says that there's a huge factor in all of this is luck it's it's and over a long enough period, if we all lived forever, at some point, you will get lucky. You'll be in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing, and, and you will become a billion-dollar company. Now, the question is, do you have enough time to do that? And will you survive long enough to get there? And that's, that's where it comes down to really stretching you know, what you're doing long enough until that opportunity comes and and then you're ready to grasp it and, and run. I mean, if we become the next unicorn, uh, inshallah, <laughs> someday, for us it would be, yeah, we survived long enough and then COVID hit and then there was the shift towards online and the dealers wanted to digitize and we had that uh, contract with the, the Dubai government and then we were really well positioned to be a digitization, you know, provider in that sense, but we also had the marketplace experience from our past work, so it just all came together and, and that that would be the got lucky part. Um, I feel like it's interesting because you're, you know, you're absolutely right. It's not all the stories that you tend to hear about, right? There's real grind. It's hard. It's, it's not the, the, the glamour, I, I think. Um, I sometimes feel like maybe we, we've been part of the problem. Generally, we celebrate a lot, you know, and then we celebrate like every single milestone. And then that comes at the cost of also not really talking about um, how challenging it can be, both on a professional and personal level, because uh, it's, it's a thousand percent conviction in what you're doing, but it's also being smart enough to realize early on and at the right time what you need to change about what you're doing um, to adapt. Yeah, that's, sure. a, that's a really good quote. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, I mean, it's good to celebrate because, you know, like I, I also heard, you know, you guys probably heard the same thing, you know, the startup life or entrepreneurship has the highs are really high and the lows are really low. But it's really 10 lows for every one high, right? It's not, it's not, it's not 50, 50. And, and I think, you know, it's good to celebrate because it keeps, you know, the morale up and all of that. But yeah, things like, you know, it's good to raise money. For example, you get a lot of congratulations on your funding round and all that. But you know, for me, that's really the start. Like it's, it's, it's almost like, okay, now I don't know. I just bought my running shoes and we need to start the race kind of thing, right? Like I didn't win anything yet. It's just a step in, in the journey. And then from a, from a pressure on entrepreneurs, I mean, it's a lot of pressure. And as, as you grow, it gets even worse. Like, you know, raising a series B and saying we're now valued at a hundred billion in essence means investors have just placed a bet on you 
to become a billion dollar company if they want to 10x their money, right? And there aren't many people who do that or can do that, right? <laughs> and basically, so, so if you raise your Series B at 100 million and you create a $250 million company, from an IRR perspective, like you didn't do a great job for your investors, which is insane because you've just created a $250 million company, right? So the pressure for, for entrepreneurs is, is high and it just gets worse and worse as you grow and you go with higher valuations over time. And I feel like we've also been, you know, to kind of come back to the piece on fundraising and, and valuations, um, you know, we've all, obviously it's clear that there's been a massive shift in what those valuations and what those rounds um, look like, perhaps also globally, but really focusing on the region. What's your take on that? I think there's definitely a, a massive inflation in valuation, and that that happens when there's a lot of money in the market. Uh, becomes more competitive, especially when governments become involved. They typically come with large funds, and they need to deploy big amounts. And you know, initially in the early days, there are few companies that are you know worth funding, and then those funds need to deploy big amounts. And then okay, there are a few companies, so let's let's give them a bigger ticket. And to avoid dilution, if you want to take that bigger ticket, you end up increasing your valuation and then it starts feeding itself at a higher valuation. You can't raise smaller tickets. So it just starts, you know, spiraling from there. Uh, and I think it's good and bad because it's bad because because of the pressure that I just mentioned. You know, it, 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 it almost makes building a $300 million business a failure in some sense if you, if you had just raised your previous round at $150 million. Uh, but it's good in a way, you know, when, when people manage to raise bigger rounds, it goes back to, you know, surviving long enough to get lucky. It means they have bigger runway, uh, longer runway, and they can, you know, survive longer. And hopefully within that time, they will crack something or, you know, something will happen for them and, and they'll, they'll get lucky. Tare, um, I want to go back a bit to like, your journey and your background as a founder, as, as starting in the investment world and then kind of moving to um, to a startup. So tell us a bit about how different that was and how was it hard to shift from that mindset of being an investor to the mindset of being a founder and, and how was it different? And then also just to add to that question, like just as a second step is, what was the hardest thing that you had to do um, in a startup or as a founder as, as you shifted to that space? Yeah, so uh, it had a lot of advantages. It also has a lot of struggle associated with it. I'll, I'll start with the, with the struggles part. So it was a big shift, obviously. Like you go from being senior or whatever, you've built that credibility in a certain sector for 15, 20 years, whatever. Suddenly it's zero, right? Like, like, you know, for 15 years, you've become a guy that people go to for whatever your industry is, right? Like whether it's your investments, people come to you for investments. If you're I don't know, a lawyer, people come to you for legal advice. And, and you build towards that. And, you know, when you're 35, 40, 45, you get to a place where you're sort of, I would say an expert, but like a knowledgeable person in that space. And then suddenly you jump and you go somewhere where you know nothing. Right, like I didn't know anything about tech. I didn't know what front end and back end <laughs> meant, like when I started. Right, so you're really starting from scratch. So it's a massive smash to your ego. Like a big from, learning experience, like to move from that. World. So that's the positive stuff. Yeah, you learn a yeah. lot, but you're really like almost, you know, everything you've built is I mean, not everything. You still have the thinking, the relationships, all that, but like a big chunk of your your technical knowledge is almost useless. It's gone. Right. Uh, just, you know, practically you used to have a big office with a, with an assistant and a driver and whatever. <laughs> Suddenly you're like working out of like a tiny workspace with, with 15 people around you and you can't make a call. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a big shift. Like I, when I first, not even when I first started, it still happens now. Like I would go to, you know how it is. So when I was at the Braj and whatever, like when, when, when you're on the investment side and you're running a fund, some people treat you as if it's your money, right? Like as, as if you're the millionaire who's, who's investing in them, right? 
the people are always nice. They come on time. They send thank you emails, blah, 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 all of that stuff. And then going to the other side, not even on, on fundraising, it was okay for me because I have a relationship with, the, with, the, with a lot of the funds. So I didn't suffer in that sense. But from a BD perspective, I would go to a you know, used car dealer and, and you know, this 22-year-old guy you know, shows up 45 minutes late to the meeting and says, oh, listen, I still have only 15 minutes. Go you know, tell me quickly what do you want kind of thing. And you take it, <laughs> you say, okay, I'll, I'll try to be quick. And you, you pitch it in 15 minutes kind of thing, which was a big, you know, shift, ego, whatever you want to call it. It was, it was a big difference. And, you know, I, I didn't come as an 18 year old, you know, student in a garage and, 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 and had that, right? Uh, financially, it's a big delta. Like I took a 75% pay cut versus my last job. So there's a lot of adjustments that, that had to happen when, when I made that shift. One really big one, which I didn't expect, is managing technical people, okay? So previously, I worked in investment banking, consulting, PE, VC, whatever. And so, I mean, I've managed people. I haven't managed like hundreds, but I've consistently managed teams of five to 15 people, right? So I thought I knew roughly how to do that. Then I come into this, and the people are so different. Like, <laughs> like you know, in... in, in business, you incentivize someone, you give them, you know, a good salary, a big fat bonus at the end, you know, some interesting deals to work on, a good brand name for the company, and they're good for life, right? Then you come here and none of these things matter. Like they care about how cool the tech product they're working on is and how are they helping the world and all that stuff. And it's like, wow, how do I manage these people? How do I get them excited? How do I get them motivated, right? Like, because they're very different from where I come from. So that was that was also a big challenge for me to learn. Uh, on the positive side, I mean, like you said, it's an insane learning experience, like nothing I've ever had or will have probably on so many levels, whether it's product or tech or management or, or strategy or everything really, because most of the time you're thinking and doing things no matter how much you love your job and care about it, it's a job. Like, it's like, okay, you know, I didn't crack it today. What's the strategy for this business? That's fine. But here it's it's your life. Like, so you can't just let it go. Like I, I was telling the team, like uh, I had my biggest <laughs> automotive industry realization 10 days ago at 3 a.m. I woke up and boom, and like I ended up sending myself six emails I messaged the team on Slack. I'm like, remind me tomorrow to tell you about this thing and whatever. But I'll tell you guys about it next time we meet, by the way. But but it's 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 all the time. It's consuming. It's 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 you know it becomes you, right? And that's good and bad. Um, in terms of experience, I think the biggest advantage I got moving from there to here is a lot of the VCs. And don't take this <laughs> the wrong way, but a lot of the VCs focus on the business side, not as deeply on the product and the problem that's being solved, right? And entrepreneurs are the reverse. They focus so much on the product and the operation and the problem they're solving. And I think often enough, not, not, not enough on, on the business side. Like, so is this business scalable? You know, uh, what are the barriers to entry? What are, you know, all these things. So, so coming from both worlds, really, I try to keep flipping between the two, saying, okay, let's do this on the product. Is it solving a real problem? What does this do? All of that. But then flipping back and saying, okay, but how do we scale this? What are the barriers to entry? Why is this, you know, how will the unit economics look like early on and all that? So so I think from a from a advantage or whatever you want to call it, I think that, that was very helpful for me. The other thing is, you know, coming from the VC world, I think and you know, talk like them. So it's, it's easier to connect with the VCs, to tick the right boxes, not because I'm, I'm, I'm faking it, but because I think that way as well. So it's, it's, it's easier for, for me to sell what we're doing, if, if it makes sense, obviously, to, to VCs than you know, someone who was an engineer all his life and is trying to sell this business concept. Yeah, we, we hear that a lot. Like we hear that, we hear that like, as as VCs, it's hard to really understand how a day-to-day -day is for a startup. Because when we do a due diligence on a company, 
it's like we're looking at these specific things and if if it checks then it checks but we don't really know what it takes for that startup to get to that milestone for example so i think that's really important and that's really a learning for us as well because i think that's important for us to understand that we really don't we really need to get maybe more familiar with the business and how the day-to-day is and more than a high level kind yeah, of look for at, sure. at a company. So I think that's really one, 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 one thing to add to that side of from a VC perspective is, and I, I, I do it still. I mean, it's like, it's, it's very hard not to do, but sometimes you hear things from the entrepreneur that they're excited about and maybe eight out of 10 are, yeah, fine, whatever, you know, that's not going to yeah. really change your business. You're just happy with it. But you need to watch out for those two out of 10 things that they're excited about that don't seem like a big deal for a VC, but yeah. are actually have a lot of meat or value behind them. So I'll, I'll give you one, one example of, of that for us. For, for us, those partnerships we're doing with this, you know, the second largest dealer in Denmark and the biggest dealer in Portugal, whatever, Sounds like, yeah, fine, okay, you're doing a partnership, you know, like, what does this mean? You know, what, what has he given you? What, where is this going to go? But practically, for example, that is a massive deal for us, right? Like it's, 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 you know, as the, not just ego or whatever, or, 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 or branding. It's, it's, it will carry tremendous value over time if we keep nourishing it. And, you know, I mentioned it to a few VCs while we talk. I, I can see it just like being, okay, sure, whatever. And I mentioned maybe eight other things that are, oh, we got this great review and blah, 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 and all these things. And, and yeah, some of these might be vanity metrics that, you know, the team gets excited about, but don't change the business. But I think it's important for VCs to listen carefully for what the entrepreneur is saying, saying and really try and find some of these, you know, hidden gems or whatever you want to call them of value that, that a lot of VCs don't really hear or, or put any, any weight on. Yeah. I think it's really important that what Seas is also doing, and I think a lot of people might not know that, is like how you're helping the dealers, because there's very little, um, there's uh, like the other solutions are not really targeting to help them. And I think that's what the dealers see the value in when, when they look at Seas and, and decide to work with you guys. I think that's really also important to, to put out there. Yeah, 100%. The other thing, actually, a uh, question for you guys, like, it's so difficult, like, like we're fortunate enough to be able to get a foot in the door and really tell our story to, to investors and VCs and whatever. But I can guarantee you, if we just send the pitch deck, without exaggerating, I would say 65% of our story will not be understood. It'll be missed if you just send the deck and say, hey, here's my deck you want to meet. Like, what can, what can companies do, like, to, to really, you know, because because it's not it's not that it's a bad deck some stories are just more complex to tell yeah yeah i think i think when vcs receive a deck like just a deck without really knowing anything um like without knowing any information beforehand the, the main thing that they look at is the team and the background so like the team the background and then like the space so if you're like if the space is interesting then okay check then they look at the team and then if that looks like an impressive team and with great backgrounds, I think that's what um, pushes to do like a first screening call. A lot of the times that's what happens. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. I think the deck you send by email, I'm, I don't know, Sarah, what you think. I think the deck you send by email it often cannot be the deck that you, uh, is, is formatted yeah. maybe a little bit differently yeah. than the deck that you present because yeah. you really want to, you have this short span of attention and you really want that attention to go on the things that really matter when they're looking at this. And particularly if it's a company that they haven't heard of, uh, you know, they will be looking at the team. I, I read some somewhere, like I think two days ago, like the average times VC spend on a deck that they receive by email is around three and a half minutes, right? So... <laughs> A very short period of time to make an impression and maybe it is what you're saying right maybe it's like highlight the industry the team and and you know within those three minutes sell that message and get your foot in the door to really do the proper pitch yeah it's also how yeah i think part of it is also how you're approached um, 
going back to actually the the, the fundraising um so you mentioned something at the very uh, beginning of of um, our talk which is fundraising because you've seen it sort of at a kind of a high level fundraising in 2008 and fundraising in 2020 what are some of par- the parallels that you can draw um in some of the differences oh wow in 2008 there was almost no VC in the region. <laughs> like the term wasn't even used. Private equity was at peak times. So that was the hot thing. And it was different, right? Like, you know, PE versus VC, it was more larger companies, more mature. People weren't looking for 10x return. They were looking for 16% IRR and all that. So so the world was was slightly different there. There was a lot of money going around, but you know, for different types of deals. SMEs at the time were like either friends and family's money or if they're lucky where they're in industry and they can get a bank loan or something like that. But, you know, uh, like like prof- institutional investors going into SMEs or VC wasn't wasn't a big thing in, in 2008, at least from, from what I saw in the region. And now it's, it's, it's I think it's the golden age of, of VC, right? Like it's, it's, now, I won't say it's easy to raise money now, because like, honestly, if you talk to any entrepreneur, no one will tell you it was easy to raise money. It's never easy. It's easier, and there's more money around, depending on the country you're in, on the sector you're in, on the type of business, on the stage, all of that stuff. So it's not like there's you know, money for everyone. You can have an early stage you know, company in Jordan or Lebanon. They're probably not easy for them to raise money, or maybe even in Saudi early stage. I don't know. But but right now there's 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 the ecosystem is getting more and more mature, you know, from and across all areas, you're getting the accelerators really popping up and maturing and having, you know, multiple cohorts, getting even international, you know, players like Y Combinator and whatever looking at the region, five hundred startups. Then you know at the later stages you're getting, you know, a lot of mid-sized VC funds, you know, in the fifty, sixty million dollar range popping up in, in, in certain hubs like Abu Dhabi and, and Riyadh. And then you're getting the more mature funds that are the later stage that are also like like Nua and, and others that are really filling in that that you know second phase gap. And then you even have the final stage, you know, the, the bigger funds like Mubadala and PIF and whatever really got also going into you know VC and, and tech and all that at a at a much later stage. So I think it's 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 the whole ecosystem is coming together from a, even even education-wise, you know, universities and all that, you know, technology, entrepreneurship, all that is really shooting up. And I think it's important for the whole thing to happen. This is why a lot of people say the Silicon Valley has a very, you know, unique formula for success. You know, they have the universities there, the right, you know, tech universities. You have the tech hubs, you have the tech players, you got the VCs. So it really all needs to come together for that ecosystem to grow. And I think we don't have it all yet, but I think we are, we're getting a lot of the ingredients for that for that to mature over the coming years. So I'm conscious that uh, we're almost out of time, actually. Um, I, I just want to maybe close on um, on what's coming next for C. So you've just announced uh, uh, closing your pre-Series B. So the move from pre-Series B to Series B and onwards. Um, for the business itself, what's what are you excited about, and what what is that going to look like for you? Yeah, so for us, by by end of twenty twenty two, we want to close our Series B, hopefully. And what's next for us is is to a large extent Europe, like really expanding into Denmark and using that as a launchpad into the rest of the Nordics, and really doing the same in Southern Europe and Portugal. Yeah, so for us, it's really getting those dealers digitized getting the marketplaces up and running building local teams we were in denmark last week we hired the general manager we're hiring marketing people so we're really you know that's that's exciting you know it's 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 a bit of a bit fresh you know we've, we've been in the region for for four, four or five years now and it's it's nice to look at other cultures or you know how they do business other markets other you know demographics of users so that's that's exciting for us, and really, you know, being able to, in a way, have this uncapped, you know, market potential where you know we 
it can be in any country versus saying, okay, we have to go from this to that, and that's it. You really, you know, you you max out in in, in your next country in the in the region. Great. Um, Tade, thank you so much for your time. Um, you I know we're a bit over time, but it was a, a pleasure hosting you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks a lot for great. your time. It was really Thanks, fun. Thanks, Tade. All right. Yeah. All right. Thank guys. you. Bye. Yeah. Bye. See you.